Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. You'll find the uh, notes for this morning's message in the bulletin, and if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is printed in full on the back of the notes. Luke chapter 16. And this morning, as we study the first 13 verses of this chapter, we're going to ask ourselves a difficult question. Um, Whom do you serve? Who do I serve? What do we serve? Jesus, in telling another parable, I think this could expose our hearts, challenge us, give us instruction, and exhortation. What is commonly referred to as the parable of the dishonest manager, that's how my ESV labels the heading, um, is a challenging and profound parable. Probably one of the more difficult ones for people Precisely because it's a parable without any good people in it. If, if you're used to reading your Bible looking for the good guys and the black guys, the guys with the white hats and the black hats, the, you're not going to find anyone like that in this parable. Everyone's compromised. Everyone is flawed in this parable. And yet Jesus uses it to challenge his disciples and to challenge us to um, store up treasure in heaven, to prepare for the future. Let's begin by reading Luke 16, 1 through 13, and then we'll dive in, trying to make some sense of it and see what the Lord has for us in it. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that I am, when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, you may receive, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Whom do you serve? Now, this section is broken into two sections. You have the the parable of the unrighteous manager in verses 1 through 9, and then principles of unrighteous mammon, principles of unrighteous mammon in 10 through 13. So we're just going to dive in working through this, but this is a challenging text. Initially, because as you see, as we look through the parable, there, there are no good guys. And one of the things you need to remember with parables is generally parables have one main point. We don't want to allegorize them. We don't want to make every point in the parable equal something else in, in real life. Um, and people have tried to do that, tried to find, is God the father, the, the owner? I don't, I don't think he is. Is Jesus showing up in here? No, there's, there's one point. I hope we'll see it. And in doing that, I think it'll help clear up what is being said. So let's begin by looking at the parable of the unrighteous manager. Now, Jesus shifts his attention. He was just speaking in chapter 15 to the Pharisees. Chapter 15 was devoted in its entirety to deal with one issue. It came up in 15, 1 and 2, if you recall, and that was that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus, in answering that charge, the implicit charge that he is unrighteous, in fellowshipping with, receiving, accepting these people, told three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. 
And the ultimate answer to the charge of the Pharisees was that these are not just sinners and tax collectors, but repentant sinners and tax collectors, and consequently God rejoices over them. And we saw the contrast of their self-righteous and proud heart over against the joyful, rejoicing heart of God. So what's going on here in 16? He turns turns, he changes his audience and turns to speak to the disciples. And that actually, that back and forth takes place over the next few chapters. We get the idea that he's speaking to his disciples, but clearly the Pharisees are nearby because we'll pick up next week in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So whatever he's just taught, the Pharisees are close enough at hand that they can hear him. So Jesus is going to alternate back and forth between the Pharisees and the disciples for the next few chapters, teaching the one and the hearing of the other. And what I think is going on topically here, what Luke is trying to highlight is this. The Pharisees in Luke's gospel and in all the gospels really represent the worst spiritual state a person can be in. And I understand that being caught up in false religion is worse than no religion at all. Jesus and God is most angry most offended by and provoked by the Pharisees. Self-righteous, hypocritical, very religious people. And so Luke is trying to show us how did they go wrong? How did the Pharisees end up the way they are? And I've read some people that think the Pharisees really just held to the law of Moses. They held to the scriptures and they just missed it. Luke, that's not the answer Luke gives. Luke makes the Pharisees' problem an ethical problem. In fact, if you look through all four Gospels, and, and you can do the little search, you can put the wild card thing and get Pharisee and love. What, what are the Pharisees said to love? Only two times does that show up. It's in Luke's gospel, and one of them is right there in verse 16, 14. The Pharisees who are lovers of money. What do the Pharisees love? They love money. Turn back to chapter 11. We'll see the other thing they love. 1142. But woe to you Pharisees, if you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought not to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They neglect the love of God. They don't have a love for God. What do they love? They love honor in front of men. They love the good seats. We've seen that as they're jockeying around trying to figure out where they can sit at the dinner party, right? So, so what Luke is showing us is the two main axes on which the Pharisees run into problems with Jesus and with God is their love of money and possessions and the fact that they view themselves righteously and they want the praise that comes with that and they, they love ridiculing and holding others in contempt. Turn over to chapter 18, verse 9. We see that clearly as well. Luke 18, 9. According to Pastor Daniel, we'll get there sometime in 2019 or something, but um, I think his estimate was a little, a little excessive last week. We'll see. But he also told them a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You say, oh, wait a second, he hasn't identified the Pharisees here. Let, let's see who his poster child for this type of person is in his story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So who does Jesus choose to epitomize those who trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt? Pharisees. And we saw that, didn't we, at the beginning of 15.2. Tax collectors and sinners are coming to Jesus. Do they rejoice? Do they, do they praise God for this? No, they're mad, they're angry. Why? They trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. These are the two axes upon which the Pharisees are at odds most strongly with Jesus, their position in relationship to money and wealth and their self-righteousness and treating with contempt with others. What did we see in all of chapter 15? An exposition and unpacking and answering the Pharisees along the axes of self-righteousness. As Jesus showed them, actually, you guys are the older brother. And the older brother is the worst of the two. The younger brother repents. He comes back. He gets restored. The story of the prodigal, we don't know the fate of the older brother. Well, now in chapter 16, Luke's going to show us 
the other axes upon which the Pharisees trip up and stumble. It's not their misunderstanding of the Bible. It's their love of money and their self-righteousness and the love of praise of man that tripped them up. And Jesus is going to teach his disciples using the Pharisees as the contrast. He's talking to the disciples, warning them. He's already warned them. Remember back in chapter 12 when he told them to be on your guard, take care, verse 15. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So he's warning his disciples about the very error the Pharisees in verse 14 will epitomize. So we come down to the question of who do you serve? And he tells them this parable of the unrighteous manager. So the parable itself takes three parts, three plot points. First, we're introduced to the, the, the owner and the manager. There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges are brought to him that his man was wasting his possessions. That word for wasting is the same word used back in uh, 1513 of the prodigal who squandered property. There's a lot of links, in fact, between what's going on here in chapter 16 and 15 and even in 14. As hospitality is really one of the big connecting themes. Who do you invite to your dinner parties? We saw that in 14, right? And in, and in chapter 15, what do all three people do upon finding they throw a celebration. The, the shepherd invites his friends to rejoice with him. He invites them into his home and he celebrates. The, the woman does the same. And the, the father of the two sons throws a party with dancing and music. And here, the question is going to be, who will receive you? Who will receive me into their dwellings in the age to come? Who will show us hospitality? So, the manager is justly fired. He wastes. He's a prodigal manager. We don't know whether this is due to purely incompetence or skeeving. Probably simply incompetence. He's making poor investments. He's given a stewardship and a charge. He's given a responsibility for his master's money, and he deals with it poorly and wastes it. And word comes to his master's ears. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about? You turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So he's fired. But here we see the first flaw in the master, the rich man. Um, most businesses where people have the ability to, to spend money, when you get terminated, somebody will walk you to your desk, they'll watch you put stuff in a box, make sure you don't take any sensitive information, and they'll escort you out. Why? To stop you from doing precisely what this guy does. Right? But this manager says, you're fired. Now go get your accounts in order. I want you to give me explain what you've done. And so this, this manager is still given, for this little bit of time, a, a stewardship. He's still entrusted with and has the authority to spend his master's money. So he's fired for his incompetence. Then we get to the manager's corrupt plan. He, he begins a soliloquy. He says to himself, what shall I do? He's in a dilemma. And his problem is he's not strong enough to dig, and he says, and I'm too ashamed to beg. Which is to say, I, I do not know what I will do after I lose this position. He's facing a judgment. He's facing discipline and correction, rightly, for what he has done. He's earned this judgment and rebuke. And he's thinking, what will I do on the other side of that? <laughs> I can't, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too proud to beg. And so he comes up with a plan. He says to himself, <clears throat> verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. So what's he worried about? He's worried about what will happen after this judgment. How will I survive after I am removed from my position, after the discipline that I, I rightly deserve is inflicted? What will happen to me then? And he's focusing on that, and he comes up with a plan. So here's his plan. He summons his master's debtors one by one. Now, a man this rich would have many debtors. We're to give an example of two examples, but there's probably many, many more, as we'll see. He summoned his master's debtors one by one. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Now, that's close, not quite, but nearly a thousand gallons of oil. He's giving an idea of how much wealth this man has and the size of this debt. This is well over a year's earnings. And what does he do? He said, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Which gives us again an insight into the fact that this is shady. Act quickly. And again, we see now, what is he actually doing? He's robbing his master, right? This is embezzlement. 
perhaps he was unintentionally squandering his master's money previously. That might just be due to his inability. Here, he is conspiring to steal from his master. And to some degree, these people who are getting the deals are in on it. They've got to know something as fishy is up simply from the fact that hurry up. They may not want to know what's going on, but they've got to be suspicious. They're complicit to some degree. I mean, if your credit card company just called you up and said, hey, really quickly sign here, we'll have your bill, you would probably sign and not ask a lot of questions as well. But you also probably think something fishy is going on. So that this, this man has saved this debtor a large amount of money. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Now we're looking at roughly a thousand bushels of grain. Again, quite a large sum. He says to him, um, take your bill and write 80. And presumably he goes through all of the debtors that way. And this is a clever plan. Because we know, we've already seen in Luke, that, that the Jews exist in an honor culture. They're focused on who gets to sit in what chair. And we talk about a par- dinner party where you're, someone's raised up. You sit at the head and you sit at the lower. And in an honor culture where this guy is given a benefit, not just to one, but to many debtors, the assumption is they will repay him. And because there's many of them, they'll each be watching each other to make sure that they're repaying him at an equal level. It's going to guarantee that he's going to be well taken care of. Because it would be a dishonor to one of these creditors if they didn't show him a sufficient amount of reciprocal Um, kindness. So he's just lined up for himself numerous wealthy people. You're a wealthy person. If you owe a thousand, presumably you're wealthy, the type of person who would go into debt and need a thousand measures of oil um, would be someone who's wealthy. They'd be able to show hospitality to him, and now he's lined up a large group of people who are in his debt, who because of the honor culture will be generous to him after his um, firing. And then here is where the story takes a remarkable twist. Verse 8, the master's surprising commendation. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's remarkable. So this, man, this master is a bit of a fool. He, he lets this man go and have time to alter his books. That's just foolish. Here he praises him for his shrewdness. I don't think this master is someone that we're, we're, I don't think we're to find God the Father in this master. This man's a bit of a fool, and he's praising unrighteousness. But the logic works. I mean, we understand that when someone acts shrewdly, even if they act shrewdly in a dishonest way, there's a sense in which we respect that. We, we, are, we are impressed by that. It's one of the reasons why heist movies are so popular. I mean, I remember one of my dad's favorite movies was The Sting. And even though all of the main characters in this thing are shysters and thieves and con men, there's, a, there's an entertaining appreciableness of, but they're clever and they're good at it and they're, they're witty and, and they're shrewd. And we can be impressed with this. This man's impressed by that as well. We even in our culture and vernacular have a saying when someone does something like that, well played, well played. Even if what they did was against our interests, against our benefit, we can respect a a shrewd dealing. The irony here is this is a poor steward. He's not very good at his stewardship, but when it comes to his own bread and butter, his own um, future, he's very shrewd indeed. And the master praises him for it. And and the logic of that makes sense. You might think it's it's unlikely that a master would do that, but, but we can recognize ourselves when someone shrewdly does something. Well played. Well played. So that's the parable. And there's one main point, and Jesus will explain what that main point is. It's a parable without any good people in it, any real virtuous people. Because here's Jesus' summary and commentary on it in the rest of um, verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, here we get the only command, the only imperative verb in this section is found right here in verse 9. And it is this, make friends for yourselves. That's the command. Everything else is explanation. So what's the parallel? Just as the manager made friends for himself, 
we, we ought to also, looking to the future, make plans for ourselves, make friends for ourselves. That's, that's the line of comparison. And we're to do it with unrighteous mammon. Mammon. Um, that's an old English word. It's probably what the King James uses here. And it's just a transliteration of the Greek, but it's, it's helpful because um, even though the ESV, I think, says money, if I'm not mistaken, um, wealth, unrighteous wealth. The notion of mammon largely includes wealth, but mammon is a little bigger than that. Literally, it comes from the Hebrew word we get amen from, and it means the things we trust in. The things we trust in. So money is probably the biggest thing we trust in, but mammon is really the picture of the things, the wealth, the possessions, and things of this life and this world. It would also include your strength and your time and your ability. It's not simply um, dollars and cents. And so Jesus tells us to make friends for ourselves with unrighteous mammon. What does he mean there by unrighteous mammon? Mammon. Um, Wealth here, writes one commentator, is characterized as dishonest in the same way that the manager was. Both belong to this eon. Indeed, in speaking of its demise, Jesus insinuates that mammon has no place in the age to come. And that's one of the things that's um, key to notice here. The ESV doesn't make this obvious, but the word is not dishonest in verse 8, but literally just unrighteous. And that word unrighteous shows up five times in our passage. The manager is said to be unrighteous in verse 8. Mammon, or wealth, in verse 9 is said to be unrighteous. In verse 10 it shows up twice. One who is dishonest in very little, really unrighteous in very little, is also unrighteous in very much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, in every instance that's unrighteous. It's simply the word for righteous with the alpha primitive in front. And so what Jesus is telling us to do is to take the things of this world that pertain to this world and by virtue of being in this world and its system is unrighteous. He's not telling us to take ill-gotten gains, but rather the temporal, the transient, the perishing money of this age and make friends for ourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. There's the line of comparison. One of the reasons I think Luke gives us the the soliloquy, and Jesus gives us the soliloquy of the manager, is we understand what his reasoning is. Back in verse 4, he is concerned with what will happen to him when he is removed from his management. That's what's on his mind. He says, what shall I do? Verse 3, since I am too not strong enough to dig and too ashamed to beg, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he finds himself in a situation that is temporary. His his situation is going to fail him. It will be taken from him. A judgment is coming. It's rightly deserved. He's facing it. He's living in this brief period now where the judgment has been announced but not enacted, not enforced. He's been told he's lost his job, but he still is able to function in it. And he's taking what little time he has to plan for his future on the other side of that judgment that's coming. And that's, that's the line of comparison. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us to make friends for yourselves, verse 9, by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, see, we too are facing a judgment that's coming. And we too have money that will be, it will fail. You won't be bringing your bank accounts into the final judgment. There will be no U-Hauls coming behind you going into heaven. It will fail you. You have its use only for a little time it will not transition with you to the next eon, right? That's the logic. And so what Jesus is telling us is just as this steward, who is a wicked and corrupt man, is worried about, concerned about, thinking about, and planning for his future after judgment, how much more should the sons of light be thinking, planning, and utilizing what they can to prepare for their after judgment? That's that's the point of comparison. That's why he says in verse 8, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. See, unbelievers use greater shrewdness in dealing with this world than believers do with the world to come. That unbelievers recognize what's in their own interests and they'll act with surprising zeal, resourcefulness, imagination, ingenuity to prepare for the future. And here are Christians, Jesus' disciples, 
And he tells us, he's told them already in his gospel that they can store up for themselves treasure in heaven. And yet, Jesus' followers don't show even remotely the same level of zeal and motivation and ingenuity and imagination in preparing for their future as the sons of this age do in preparing for their temporal. That, that's the point of comparison. There's a, there's a note of rebuke in it. You think of what lengths people will go to to make a buck. What lengths people will go to to earn more and more, to secure wealth and property for themselves, to get a deal. How many years of school they will go and what debt they'll enter into simply to put them in a position to make more money on the other side of it. And how much of life do we spend preparing for, equipping ourselves for making money? And then there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. The point is then how much more should we be preparing for and taking actions to secure for ourselves um, our future on the other side of judgment. That's the logic. To make friends for yourself with unrighteous mammon who will welcome you into heaven. That's the, that's the comparison here. Now Jesus doesn't explicitly tell us how to do that. In the parable of the manager, he, he steals from his boss. He gives them money that is not his to give. And of course, we're not to follow along in that line. This isn't some warrant for Robin Hoodism going out and redistributing wealth. The simple point is this. He knows what side his bread's buttered on. He knows what he can do to get people to um, be kind to him. And he's using whatever means he has. They're corrupt. They're wrong. But he's taking action. Now, if you turn back in, in Luke's Gospel, I want to remind you of some of the things Jesus has had to say to his disciples about money. Because as we try to think, okay, how do we do that then? If we're not to follow suit and to steal and embezzle, which, I, which is not, I think, what Jesus is telling us to do, I think some of Jesus' teaching to his disciples prior to this um, would give us some insight into this. Turn all the way back to chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. I just want to briefly walk through Luke's Gospel and some of the uh, instructions he has given already in this regard. In Luke chapter 6, he began the Sermon on the Plain, his great sermon, largest extended teaching in Luke's gospel so far. And he begins with the Beatitudes, the blessings and the cursings. And the very first blessing in, in Luke 6.20 is this, Blessed are the poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, if you have received your consolation. Jump down to verses 30 and 31. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus is giving his disciples an ethic of generosity. When people ask, you give. That's one of the things Jesus says about money. Jump a little further down to verse 35. Love your enemies. Do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. There's the first introduction to this notion of giving now to get a reward later. That's the logic of our parable. You're, you're in a temporary situation. Your money will fail you. It, it will rot and turn to dust. But while it's still in your power to do something with it, do something that will have significance in the future. That's the logic Jesus is, is working on. Jump now to chapter 12, Luke 12. Verse 15, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he tells in the parable of the rich man who had an excess of crops, and he builds his towers, and he dies. Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He, he reminds his followers that God cares for the birds, he cares for the flowers, in the grass, verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. Now there's the contrast. Your money will fail you. The money you have now will fail you. But if you are generous now with it, you can secure for yourselves money bags and treasure that will not fail and where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be 
also. Then chapter 14. As we looked for over three weeks at Jesus' radical call to discipleship, the last point he made in verse 33 was this. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. So what has Jesus taught his disciples along these lines? He warns us about loving money. He warns us about covetousness. And he tells us that by, by being generous, by giving to others, by treating them as we would like to be treated, by giving to those who ask from us, by helping the poor, by, by using our money in those ways, for kindness and for mercy, we can obtain for ourselves a treasure in heaven that does not fail. He tells his disciples, you want to come after me? You need to renounce what you own. So now plug that into chapter 16, what we just read. And Jesus' command and instruction here in verse 8 and verse 9. The sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealings with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's Jesus' instruction. We would be wise to be thinking of our future. We would be wise to be thinking of the judgment to come. And we'd be wise to remember that all the things we have now will not follow us into heaven. We cannot take them with us. They will perish. Listen, listen to 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So Jesus tells his disciples, tells us, that if we're thinking of the future and if we're thinking of the judgment to come and if we're thinking of eternity, we would be wise to show the same zeal, the same effort, the same focus and motivation to be storing up and preparing for ourselves friends who will greet us when we go into heaven. And that's an amazing thing to think, that you can take the, the things of this life that will rot and perish, and through your kindness and your generosity with them, for eternity, your heaven will be different. Your heaven will be filled with people who greet you. This, this can be both acts of compassion. This can also be giving to missionary work. I mean, just think of all the things you can do from which people are blessed, truly blessed. In fact, in contrast, we'll see this in two weeks, but the parable of the rich man and Lazarus a little later in chapter 16, here's the antithesis. The, the rich man doesn't give, right? Lazarus desired to be fed with the scraps that came from his table, meaning he didn't get them. He just wanted them. When the rich man dies, does he get received and welcomed? No, he actually goes to Hades, to hell. And in hell, he asks that Lazarus might come and dip his finger in water and put it on his tongue. Does he have friends to greet him? He can't even get someone to come and give him a drop of water. He's the antithesis of this type of mentality. He loved his riches. He used them for himself. He ate sumptuously. And on the other side of judgment, he has no welcome. He has no reward. We don't want to be like that. You know, there's a, there's a powerful movie um, that I remember seeing a few years ago, Schindler's List. You guys ever have you seen that? It's based on a true story. Oscar Schindler was a German manufacturer who through 1939 to 44 um, was able to protect and save the life of over 1,200 Polish Jews from the Nazis. And, in, and what he's doing is he'd just have them work in his factories and he'd bribe German officials to, to protect them and keep them out of the concentration camps. And there's a powerful scene at the end of the movie. After the Allies have won, um, he's, he's looking over what he has and most of his wealth is gone. His factories have been bombed. He made, owned an artillery factory. And the, the, some of the Jews that he had saved come to thank him and he begins weeping. And they don't understand it. But in his mind, what he's thinking is, and he says this, he looks at a watch that he has. He said, that could, I could have saved two more people with that watch. He looks at his Jeep that he owns, a nice car, and he thinks, that, that, that could have been eight more people. And he's seeing, even in that moment, the failure of his wealth and what he could have done with it. And, and that's just saving people's life in this world. 
Jesus is telling us, telling his disciples, that we can have an even greater effect with what we do. But he doesn't just leave it there with the carrot. The carrot is you can, you can have people welcoming you when you get to heaven because of your kindness and generosity, because of your kingdom priorities with your money. But then he comes around the other side to explain, I think, why it is that his followers, his people, don't necessarily show the same zeal. See, I don't think it's ultimately because we lack shrewdness. I think every one of us, if you had the potential to make a large amount of money, would probably show the same level of motivation and zeal that the steward does, perhaps not doing anything illegal, but you'd make sure you were there on time, you'd make sure you had your papers in order if you could make a large windfall. So why is it then that Jesus' followers don't act the same way in regards to heaven? Well, Jesus is going to give us um, four principles of unrighteous mammon, four truisms. Notice they're just truisms. They're either rhetorical questions or just proverbial true statements. And the relationship, I think, is to the implied rebuke. Why is it that the sons of this generation are more shrewd in their dealings with their own generation than the sons of light? Well, let's take a look at these four um, principles of unrighteous mammon to see if we can get some insight. The, the, the potential for reward is great. Well, here's the first truism. Faithlessness is never due to a lack of wealth. Faithlessness is never due to a lack of wealth. Look at what he says first. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in very much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. What's the point? How much money you make doesn't change your heart. And I know people who say to themselves, absolutely, they think this is a great message for all those fat cats to hear, and they tell themselves, I don't have much, so of course I can't be generous. I don't have much. I can barely make ends meet. So of course, the Lord isn't expecting me to be generous. I'm glad all those you know, fat cats are hearing this. Jesus says, that's not true. <laughs> if you can't be faithful a little, what makes you think just getting a lot of money is going to suddenly make you faithful? The amount of wealth you have, the amount of possessions and material blessings you have, by no means makes you faithful or unfaithful. It simply demonstrates your faithfulness <clears throat> or your faithlessness. Listen to the uh, commendation that Paul gives the Thessalonians, the 2 Corinthians 8. In 2 Thessalonians 8, Paul writes about a remarkable thing. A very poor church was very, very generous. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They are extremely poor, and yet they are extremely generous. And Paul sees that as an evidence of the grace of God. So don't tell yourself that I would be generous if only I had more. Jesus says, no, if you can't be faithful with a little, what makes you think you'd be faithful with a lot? Your heart with a little is going to be your heart with a lot. It's still the same you. And again, mammon means more than simply dollars and cents. It also can be involved your time. We've been looking at hospitality in these chapters, having people into your home. There are many ways that you can be generous that aren't simply writing checks. Faithlessness is never due to a lack of wealth. Point B, if you prove to be an unfaithful steward, you will receive no true riches and nothing that is your own. This is probably one of the stronger warnings. In verse 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? At the end of verse, in verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? You see, there's another point of comparison with us and the steward, and that is this, we are stewards. Your money is not your own. My money is not my own. What Jesus is, is making clear is we are given a stewardship. And we're given a stewardship over perishable mammon, over the wealth, the finances, the things of this world that will not endure. And if we can't be faithful with that, what makes us think God's going to entrust us with any true riches? The true riches that he spoke of earlier in chapter 12 that don't fail. Well, what's the implied answer? He's not. And the implied answer to the next rhetorical question in verse 12, if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
And what we're getting at here is this notion of an inheritance, inheriting eternal life, inheriting the kingdom. Go, go back to chapter 12. I think Jesus is piggybacking on an uh, example he's already used. You remember this, of the uh, servants. Luke 12, verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for all, for us or for all? And the Lord said then, who is the faithful and wise manager? And we've just been told we're managing, stewarding someone else's money, whom his master will set over his whole household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant. So blessed is the faithful manager. Why? When his master returns, he will give him an even greater stewardship. But truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. That servant mistakes his stewardship for his own possessions and uses his wealth and his mammon for himself only. What will happen? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So... The imagery Jesus is using back in 16 is he's saying this, if you're not faithful with the stewardship God has given you, you will not be given a greater stewardship and you will not be given anything that is your own. So let's plug that in. You will come to the judgment that this money will fail, it will dissolve, and what will it be replaced by? Will there be people to welcome you into heaven? Will you be given and entrusted with God's riches? No. Well, the picture of that ultimately is the rich man in our very next parable a little later in chapter 16. Faithlessness proves faithlessness. How does that work? Press it on. Jesus is going to make the, the point clear why that would be the case. Why people who prove to be ultimately unfaithful in their stewardship of mammon ultimately will not receive an inheritance in the age to come. We get to our last two points. Because you can't serve both. Only one can be your God. Look at what he says in verse 13 and 14. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now here's one of those instances where I wish the uh, ESV and other translations, I think the Holman gets this right, would translate doulos, not as servant, but as slave, which is what it means, because this statement only makes sense if you plug in slave. A servant can have two masters. You can have two part-time jobs. You can work at Walmart. You can work at Subway. Only a slave cannot have two masters. That's the logic. What Jesus literally says is no slave can serve two masters. You can't have two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What Jesus is getting at is this. There's something about money and mammon and wealth and possessions that draws our heart into slavery. To serving it. That's your blank here. The love of possessions enslaves. The love of possessions enslaves. There's, a, there's an irony here. Mammon means the things we trust in. The things that promise protection. I mean, what do we call the monies that we have set aside for the future? But securities, right? And even though we turn to them to serve us, we turn to them to protect and preserve us. They promise, I will take care of you. In a day of trouble, money says, I will be your salvation. Sickness comes, I'll pay your bills. Want comes, if you've got money in the bank, you'll be set. Money promises all these things. We, we look to it, and yet it enslaves us. Rather than serving us, we serve it. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul, I think, unpacks this point most clearly. The reason why a person who is consistently unfaithful with money will not be receiving an eternal reward, I think, and here's the, the, to make the logic simple, it's because a person who is consistently unfaithful with their stewardship of money is a person whose God is money and not God. That, that, I believe, is the answer. Look at 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Desire for wealth and riches plunges you into destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's why Jesus is warning his disciples. He's telling them, look, you guys, if you're generous, and if you knew what was in your best interest, you would be generous with your money. And in doing so, you'd be faithful stewards, and you'd also be serving your own interests. There's a great irony here. In the parable, the steward has to choose between being faithful to his master and faithful to pursue his own interests. And so he chooses to be unfaithful to his master in order to protect his own interests. What Jesus is telling us is that both our best interests and our master's will are the same. In being generous with our money, possessions, and wealth, we prepare a welcome in heaven, and we're being faithful with what God wants us to do. It's right in line with the instructions Jesus has already given throughout Luke's gospel to his disciples. We don't have to choose. Do I be faithful to God, or do I look out for what's for my greatest joy and blessing in the future? And the answer is yes, you do both, because they're the same thing. And then Jesus begins to warn his disciples of what will stop them from doing that. And he warns them that the money will enslave you. It'll draw you away. It'll, it'll enslave you. You will become its slave. And ultimately, why is it that people who prove, prove to be unfaithful, ultimately with wealth and money and possessions, will not be inheriting eternal life? Why is that the case? Because ultimately, point D, the love of money will make you hate God. The love of money will make you hate God. That is what he says. Look at it. No one can serve, verse 13, two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other. So, if you love money, what do you hate? God. That's Jesus. Simple, cut and dry. And the logic of it, I think, is this. If, love, if, if mammon and wealth and this world's goods have got a hold of your heart and you're, you're pursuing it and you're bowing down in homage to it and you're treating it as though it's worth living for, understand the word for worship simply is the old English worth-ship, indicating that something is worthy of your adoration, it's worthy of your energy. So if you're treating wealth as if it's worthy of all of your time and energy and attention, then you are worshiping it. Then a God who says, you want to follow me, you got to renounce what you have. You want to follow me, you got to give it away, you got to be generous, will be a threat to the thing that you give most worth to. Right? It's not for nothing that the very next verse, look at 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him. We're getting understanding as to why the Pharisees hated Jesus. Because they loved money. Jesus just said, you love the one, you're going to hate the other. They love the one, what do they do? They ridicule and mock him, they hate the other. When this sapling tree is full grown, it will produce hatred for God. You can't do both. And in the, and in the West and in America, we have been told a lie that we can do both, that you can be wealthy prosperous and successful. You can expect that. That's, that's good ambition. And you can be a good God-fearing Christian. We've got prosperity preachers on TV who will even say, pursuing wealth is a sign of God's blessing and mark on you. Jesus says in clear and stark terms, you cannot serve both. Doesn't mean you can't have both. Doesn't mean having money is wrong. Serving money is wrong. Loving money is wrong. God will give riches to some. And if you're faithful in little, you may well prove to, that the Lord is willing to trust you to be faithful with much. You can covet and love money as a poor person just as easily as you can covet and love money as a rich person. It's all a matter of the heart. And so Jesus puts out both the carrot and the stick. He puts out this promise of reward that we can, with the things we do, with this transient money and, and possessions and our wealth and the things of this world, we can secure for ourselves treasure in heaven, a great welcome into our eternal dwelling. Or we can 
find our hearts wooed and enticed and ultimately enslaved to the things of this world, which will prove we're not serving God, we don't love Him. That's where this ends. This is the explanation for the tragic situation of the Pharisees. And Jesus is loving His disciples by warning them, saying, hey, keep, keep your eye on the prize. If you, like me, find your heart drawn away, I think the, the solution this passage would give is to spend some time thinking about the, the big picture. You get so caught up on next week, next month, next year. Think about 100 years from now. Think about 1,000 years from now. Think about a million years from now. Th get, get a big, long view of history. It was only when the manager began to contemplate his future that he came up with this plan, right? Look at verse 4. What will I do? I've decided what I will do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. What's he concerned with? He's concerned with his future after judgment. And because he's concerned with his future after judgment, he comes up with an ingenious plan. Jesus is telling us likewise, we should be thinking about, we should be concerned with our future. And if we are, I think that'll help guard us from the love of money, from the worship of money and possessions. But understand, the Pharisees are this tree gone to seed, full bloom, fully grown. And they show up in the very next passage as Jesus responds to them. And he tells them the parable, the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is a picture of that tree, fully grown, gone to seed, of what someone in love with this world's possessions looks like and what his fate is. It's ugly, it's frightening, and he'd have us avoid it. Now, we're not saved by being generous. But make no mistake, you can't serve God and money. And so one of those will be your master and your Lord, and you will hate the other. That's what Jesus is saying. One needs to make a choice to serve God or money. One cannot serve both. A choice to serve God is a choice to be generous with money. Divided loyalties are prohibited. A generous steward now will yield a rich reward later. The disciple, just like the dishonest steward, should look ahead. The disciple should consider what God can do and what he has done. The follower should use money not selfishly but generously and faithfully so that one may possess all the future riches God has for the disciple. Once again, Luke makes the options crystal clear. Let's pray. Lord God, guard our hearts from the love of money and possessions. Guard us from deceptive lies about why we're not generous now. Give us hearts that are after your heart. You shower your blessings upon us. You, you, every day, you just give and give and give more grace to us. Give us hearts that model your heart. Help us to be free with the things you've given us. Help us to remember and keep in mind that we are but stewards Help us to think of the future and not simply live for the moment. That we might store up treasure in heaven, that we might prepare for ourselves a rich entry into our eternal dwelling. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.